We continue our study of the uh, book of uh, Hebrews, and we will actually conclude the 10th chapter uh, today, and next Sunday move into chapter 11, that great uh, hall of fame of faith. This is our 19th message uh, on this book. Uh, probably before we finish, we'll probably, uh, probably take us about 25, 26 messages. I do plan to conclude the study prior to the uh, end of this year. And I trust uh, this study has been as meaningful to you as it has been uh, to me. I've really uh, enjoyed this uh, study. And in uh, the message today, uh, you'll notice the uh, title of the message. I hope you picked up a copy of the sermon notes, but of course we have it on PowerPoint as well. Uh, Shrinking back in sin or moving forward in faith? That's a question that we need to uh, each answer here this morning. Uh, what category would I fall into? Am I, again, shrinking back into sin as a believer, drifting, wandering from God as a prodigal, or am I moving forward in faith? Uh, We've uh, shared before the uh, quote that one of the primary roles of a pastor is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And I've shared with you, you see this uh, done in no better way than here in the book of Hebrews. I literally cannot think of another book in the entire Bible that has greater passages of encouragement and comfort. Uh, Just marvelous passages that speak to that. But on the other hand, you have these uh, stern warnings in the book uh, to believers Uh, for us not to uh, fail to appropriate what has been given us and to not drift from Christ into unbelief and disobedience. And in this morning's passage, we come to the fourth of the five warnings that you find in the book of of Hebrews, and we'll be uh, looking at that. That's actually contained in verses uh, 26 through 31. And just to remind you, and there's a sequence in these uh, five warning passages. They they do build upon one another. Uh, You remember the first warning was found in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where the focus was on drifting from God's Word, neglecting God's Word. In other words, going through the motions as a believer, but really not appropriating, putting into use, obeying God's Word. And we... Uh, saw that that led us to the second warning, which is found in chapter 3. begins at about verse 7 all the way through chapter 4, 13. And you remember that gave us the example of the children of Israel who being redeemed out of Egypt uh, through the blood of the Passover lamb, which was a picture of Jesus, uh, despite uh, their blessings, despite their redemption and their salvation, uh, they fell into unbelief, uh, which led to disobedience and their unwillingness Uh, to follow God into the promised land. And as a result, God swore uh, in His anger towards His children that they would, what, not enter His wrath. And so they did wander for 40 years, and every one of that generation died off until God took them into the uh, promised land. And then the third warning was the warning that we found in chapter 5, beginning at verse 11, all the way through chapter 6, verse 8, about being dull of hearing or unresponsive to God's Word. In other words, if you drift from God's Word, it's obvious that you're going to begin to doubt it, and you're going to fall into unbelief. 
And if that happens, you're going to become dull or unresponsive uh, to God's Word. And remember, in this warning is where the writer of the book of Hebrews really got on to these Hebrew Christians. Remember, we believe this is a group of Hebrew Christians that the book is written to uh, that uh, uh, were struggling with persecution, flirting with the idea of uh, actually retreating from Jesus and going back to their former Judaism, thinking that would be much safer. And, uh, and he really uh, tells them, hey, you've become dull of hearing. You've become unresponsive. As a result, you've, you've literally regressed. You know, at one time you were really growing in your faith. Now you've become spiritual babies. You're, you're walking in immaturity. And I cannot even treat you as like, uh, like those who are uh, mature. And then that brings us to the fourth warning today that we'll look at. And uh, that has to do with uh, despising God's Word through willful sin. A believer can turn from God and choose to walk in sin. And uh, this warning will, uh, will deal uh, with that. But uh, let's follow along in your notes. I hope you have your Bibles already open to uh, chapter uh, 10. And we need to begin with that first point, which, act, which actually is a review of... Uh, some of the last message, and that is God's gracious invitation to the believer. Because it's very important to see that this warning about uh, despising God's Word and, uh, and uh, falling into willful sin comes right behind uh, the greatest invitation probably found in the entire uh, Bible towards a believer, the greatest word of an encouragement. And of course, Uh, Look at what that invitation is. Let's remind ourselves. First, we are invited to enter God's presence through Christ's blood. We are invited to enter God's presence through Christ's blood. Look at uh, Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 10. Look at verses 19 and 20. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place. And what is that holy place? It's the holy of holies, the place where we find God's immediate presence. Remember in the Old Testament, uh, uh, only one person could enter the holy of holies. That was who? The high priest. And he could only enter the holy of holies, what? One time a year. Uh, The children of Israel as a community had no access to the immediate presence of God. But in chapter 10, we see this focus on the supreme sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When He died for the penalty of our sin to impute His righteousness to us, and as a result of that, now every believer has access to the presence of God 24-7, not on the basis of our efforts, but on the basis of the uh, blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, The simplest way I know to put it, is that when Jesus shed His blood there on the cross, uh, He was treated by God the Father as if He had lived your sinful life, my sinful life. In other words, He was punished for our transgressions uh, as a substitute. And why? So that now we could be treated as if we had lived Christ's sinless life uh, through faith in Him as we place our confidence in the fact that His blood was sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin, that He did rise again from the dead, that the grave could not hold Him, and for all that place their faith in Him, He not only cancels that sin debt out, but He literally imputes, deposits to your account all His righteousness. So as you come into His presence, God sees you uh, as one 
whose sin debt has been canceled, and one who comes clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we're invited to enter God's presence through Christ's blood. Notice that second bullet point. We're invited to come to our great and faithful high priest who gives mercy when we sin and grace in our trials. Look at verse 21. We not only uh, come through the blood, but we come to what? And since we have a great priest over the house of God. And you remember chapter 4, verse 16, where it says that we come to a what? Throne of grace. And we come to that throne of grace to receive two things, mercy and grace in our time of need. So what this is saying, it, it, it's, it's the most wonderful truth for every believer. If you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, you have the confidence to come into His presence despite your sin and failure. Despite your sin and failure. You can come to receive mercy. And not only mercy, but grace. Grace, God's empowerment to forsake that sin and to live a new life. To walk down a new path and to find grace in your trials. And then look at that next bullet point. Well, what, what we must do in accepting God's invitation. We saw in the last message that God has given us this gracious invitation. And He's made provision for us through the blood of Jesus Christ to have access to His presence. But this is a relationship, and we must reciprocate to what He's done. And so we have responsibility as believers, and you see what the responsibility is. First, we must draw near with a sincere heart. Look at verse 22. In light of this gracious invitation to come, he says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And we saw what that sincere heart is. God says, in light of what I've done for you in Jesus Christ, and as I extend this invitation for you to come and commune and to fellowship with me, I'm asking you to come with a sincere heart. And that word sincere means undivided. In other words, you must come acknowledging that Jesus Christ is worthy of all that you are and all that you possess. He is worthy of your attention. He is worthy of your affections and your allegiance. And so you come to lay down your life before Him and to give Him your complete allegiance. And as you come, you come to experiencing His cleansing power because we still fight with sin. We still struggle with sin. But even in, in the midst of my sin and failure, I can come. God, here I am. Search me and try me. Oh, Lord, forgive me for that lousy attitude of bitterness that I, that I expressed earlier today, that unforgiving spirit or that explosion of anger or, or, or whatever it might be, that, that act of sin that I committed. And so, Lord, I, I come to have my conscience sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. And when he refers to your body being cleansed by the water, he's talking about the water of God's Word, uh, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that has taken up residence in you. So God says, this is what I expect as you come, that you come with that sincere heart, an undivided heart, that you come being open and transparent about your sin, and that you come open to the ministry of my Word through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And then notice the second thing that he expects of us. Not only to draw near with a sincere heart, but to hold fast the confession of our hope. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now remember, that word hope in the New Testament literally means confidence. So he's saying, when you come, yes, come with an undivided heart, but you come in faith, confident that I will stay true to my word. You come confident that the blood of Jesus Christ is greater than your sin. And there's no sin that I cannot forgive. There's no need that I cannot meet. And so I come, despite my weakness, despite my failure, believing God will be faithful to perform what He promised in my life. Not only to cleanse, but to empower and to accomplish His purposes in me. But then also there's one other responsibility of mine. I'm to come to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Look at verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. It's talking about corporate worship, what we're doing this morning. As is the habit of some. There were some in this church family among these Hebrew Christians that had begun to forsake the assembly because of the fear of persecution and uh, other issues. But he says, don't do that, but, but we're, we're to come together to encourage one another as all is the more as you see the day drawing near. So he says, okay, I give you this gracious invitation to come, but I have an expectation of you. You're to come with a sincere heart, an undivided heart, You're to come with openness. You're to come with transparency, confident that I will fulfill every promise that I've given you. And I want you to come recognizing that when I saved you, I put you into a community of believers. I put you into the body of Christ. I put you into the church. I never intended any believer to live as a lone ranger. You're to live in community. And that community is one of the graces I've given you. Just like I've given you the blood of Jesus Christ, just like I've given you the Word of God, I've given you a community to participate in where you can find encouragement. And without that community, you are literally going to be eaten up out there in the world. So he says, as you come, yes, come, availing yourself of Christ's blood with that sincere heart, confident that I'll keep my promises, but also recognizing that you're in community. Now, that moves us now into the warning. Uh, Look at that second point in your sermon notes. God's solemn warning to to the believer who spurns his invitation to come into his presence for cleansing, for encouragement, for grace, and chooses instead to keep on sinning. Let's, let's read the warning in its entirety. Chapter 10, I'll begin reading at verse 26, and we'll go through verse 31. For if we go on sinning willfully, and again, he's speaking to believers. Notice, we would include what? The writer of the book of Hebrews. So we know he's talking about believers And he's addressing this church of Hebrew Christians. He says, For if we, as believers, go on sinning willfully after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge who? His people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, folks, you have to admit, verses 26 through 31 is in stark contrast uh, to verses 19 through 25, this gracious invitation to come into His presence through the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's just walk through this in a a very deliberate uh, uh, manner. And uh, hopefully uh, a passage that has created a lot of difficulty for a lot of folks will try to make it extremely simple. And look at that first bullet point. It just sort of sets the tone. When a believer sins, and this is pretty obvious, he has a choice. The believer can confidently, as we've just stated, despite his sin and failure, come into God's presence through Christ's blood to receive mercy and grace, or he can choose to keep on sinning. I mean, do you see the simplicity of that? In other words, here I am as a believer. Uh, let's say I fall into immorality. I have a choice. God says, of course, that would grieve God, of course. We know it would hurt the Heavenly Father. It would grieve our brother, the Lord Jesus, who died for our sin. But God is made a way through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, Andy, despite your failure, despite the immorality, you can come. But you have to come with what? A sincere heart. You have to come willing to be open and transparent about your sin, not play games with me. And you need to come realizing the need for the community to help you through this. But you can come. And when you come, what's the two things He promises to give you even in your sin and failure? Mercy. And not only mercy, grace. You know, He meets you with mercy. He meets you with His cleansing, but He also meets you with grace to empower you to turn away from the sin and now to walk in righteousness. To bring transformation, to bring change to your life. See, folks, if if you have the idea that now because I have failed, I have no access to God's presence, well, folks, you've just cut yourself off from the only source that you're going to know to give you victory in that situation. And if you're going to wait till you clean up your own act to get into His presence, it just ain't going to happen because you don't have that strength and you don't have that power. So God, in His infinite mercy through Jesus Christ, has removed every obstacle for the believer. He's dealt with our sin. He's already paid the judgment. And because He paid that judgment, I can come. And I can come even in my failure. Matter of fact, it's interesting. You go back to, uh, let me point this out to you. You, I think you'll appreciate this. And I did not mention this in a previous message. You go back to verse 19. Where it says, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place. Circle the word, that word confidence in the Greek text is parousia. And you know what that word literally means? It literally means frankness of speech. 
It means the freedom to speak frankly. And, and what that saying is, as a believer, even when I fail God, I have the, I have the boldness to walk right into God's presence speaking frankly, speaking openly. Again, in brokenness and transparency about my sin, to pour my heart out to God about my struggle, about my weakness, my frailty, uh, the issues that I'm dealing with in, 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 in my life. So I, I have that opportunity. Now, but I have another choice, don't I? I can choose not to avail myself of God's presence, not to avail myself of God's mercy and grace, and I can choose to continue in my sin. And that's what this warning is addressing. It's addressing that believer who, when he sins, who, when he fails, refuses to avail himself of God's mercy and grace and instead chooses to keep on sinning. Now look at the next point, bullet point. When a believer refuses to appropriate God's mercy through Christ's sacrifice, there is no other sacrifice God has provided. Therefore, God is left with no choice but to severely what? Discipline. Discipline his child. Chastise his child. Look again at verses 26 and 28. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, and that that uh, in the Greek text, it's talking about after receiving the full knowledge of the truth. I mean, that's a synonym of, of, of conversion. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And don't let that hang you up. All that is saying, it's a very simple concept. It's saying if you as a believer refuse to avail yourself of the one sacrifice God made for you through Jesus, there is no other sacrifice, there is no other place for you to go. Do you see the simplicity of that? There is no other place. In other words, when you're a believer and you fail, God has made provision for your sin and failure. Only one place, and that's with Jesus in His sacrifice. And that's why you're invited to come to know the power of that blood, to sprinkle you, to cleanse you, and then His grace to empower you to turn from that sin and to walk in obedience. So the believer that refuses that, who refuses in his sin and in his failure to come into God's presence, to confess his sin, to receive God's mercy and grace, folks, there, there's no other place for him to turn. There is not another sacrifice for him to look to. If he refuses to appropriate that mercy and grace, there's no other place to find it. Look at verses 30, uh, uh, 30 and 31, emphasizing the uh, severity of the discipline. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And, and again, we don't need to be disturbed by the strength of those words. Let me tell you, I was my father's son, and I can tell you at times it was a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of my dad uh, with his uh, discipline. And uh, same thing with God. God loves us. And yes, our sins are forgiven, but that doesn't mean that God lets us off, does it? It means that God is in the business of changing us. And if we're going to not avail ourselves of what He's provided for us, and if we're going to choose instead to willfully walk in sin 
as a rebel, as a prodigal, God says, I will take whatever measures necessary to get your attention and to bring you to brokenness and to deal with this issue. Now, why? Notice the question in your notes. Why the severity of the discipline? Let's walk through this. First, the believer, we're just making an observation here, the believer who continues in sin, what is he actually doing? Now, let's see it from God's point of view. He's defiantly looking at God, and he's saying, Stay out. Just leave me alone. I want to do what I want to do. That's exactly what the believer is saying. That willfully is continuing to walk in his sin. God, just stay out. But out of my life. Leave me alone. In other words, look at that next sentence. They deny the lordship of Christ. They deny it. They, f- f- they fail to submit to it. They ref- not fail, they refuse. Because it's a willful, deliberate act. Uh, and what, as a result, their lives become what? Virtually undistinguishable from unbelievers. In other words, they become a reproach on the name of Christ. They become, their, their testimony uh, darkens uh, the cause of Christ. Look at the second reason this, of the severity of the discipline. The believer who continues in sin counts the Son of God as worthless in comparison to enjoying his sin. Look at verse 29. It says, How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who is trampled underfoot the Son of God? That phrase, trampled under the foot of the Son of God, the, the meaning of that is, Whatever you trample under your foot is something you consider worthless, meaningless. And he's saying the believer who turns from the sacrifice of Christ and the gracious invitation that God is offering of mercy and grace, the believer that turns from that to choose to deliberately, willfully walk in sin, in essence what he's saying is, I value my sin more than Jesus. And folks, by the way, that may be the best definition that I could ever give you of sin. Sin is just simply valuing anything more than you value Jesus Christ. And see, that believer who willfully is walking in sin, he's basically saying, I value my sin. I value the passing pleasures of sin more than I value my relationship, my fellowship with Jesus Christ. The absolute contrast of what Paul wrote in Philippians 3, where he says what? I count all things, what? Loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have counted all things as rubbish in order that I might gain Him, that I might know Him that I might follow Him. Look at the next, next reason the severity of, uh, for the severity of the discipline. The believer who continues in sin, in sin cheapens, cheapens the blood, the blood of Jesus. It saved him by embracing the very sin that Jesus shed His blood for. Look at the middle part of verse 29. Not only do you trample under the foot of the Son of God, but He has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified. 
In which Jesus shed His blood for you. He shed His blood for the penalty of your sin. To sanctify you as we saw in chapter 10. Once and for all what? Forever. And then you're going to turn your back on Jesus Christ. You're going to embrace willfully, deliberately the very sin that put Him on the cross. And you're going to continue in that sin. So God says, you're not only trampling underfoot the Son of God, you're not only demonstrating that you're considering your sin more valuable than fellowship with Jesus, but you're cheapening the blood of Jesus Christ that sanctified you. And then not only that, look at the, the third reason for the severity of the discipline. The believer who continues in sin. Now again, folks, understand, we're talking about the believer This isn't a stumbling into sin, a falling into sin. This warning is about the believer who knows exactly what he's doing, who deliberately, willfully chooses a pathway that he knows is wrong. And the believer who does that, it continues and treats with indifference. Treats with indifference the pleading, convicting, wooing, and leading of the Holy Spirit who lives in him. Look at that last phrase in verse 29. And has insulted the Spirit of what? Grace. What does God say? He said that Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you and he's the Spirit of grace. He's there to empower you to know Strength in your trials, but then to also know strength to not only have the penalty of sin dealt with, as it already has through the blood, but to know being delivered from the very power of sin to walk in righteousness. And if you're a believer, you're going to come under conviction. That's one thing I can guarantee you. A believer can deliberately, willfully choose to sin... But if he does, I guarantee he's going to know God's pleading. He's going to know God's wooing. He's going to know God's conviction. And that's one of the reasons for the severity of the discipline. You're just treating with total indifference all of the warnings and pleadings and wooings of the Holy Spirit that is at work in your life. Now, how does God discipline? Look at the next question there in your notes. How does God discipline? Very important. The believer will not suffer the loss of salvation. There are some people that will take this passage and they'll try to demonstrate that it's a believer losing his salvation. No, it's not the loss of salvation. But we don't need to play down the seriousness of it. But God can take their life, in other words, take their life prematurely, or let the, or maybe even worse, this next point, let them live the rest of their lives experiencing the consequences of their sin. Now, folks, that should create terror in the heart of every believer. And I don't apologize for using that word, because it is, as it says in verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. It's a terrifying thing to spurn His gracious offer through Jesus Christ, deliberately, willfully walk in sin. Now, I've noticed in those references, I've given you some examples. I've told you before that I believe the key, or the, or the interpretive key to the entire book of Hebrews is the example of the children of Israel in chapters 3 and 4. I believe that's the interpretive key to the book. 
Because when you go back to their example that he gives in chapters 3 and 4, this was a redeemed group of people. They had been redeemed out of slavery from Egypt. They all came out of Egypt under the blood of the Passover lamb. But despite the fact of being a redeemed, a saved people, they fell into unbelief and willful disobedience. They refused to do what God told them to do. And folks, it was a terrifying thing for that people then to be confronted with God for their defiance, for their deliberate sin, and for Him to say, I swear to you, because of your insolence, because of your persistence in sin, you will not enter my rest. You are going to wander in this wilderness for 40 years, and every one of your bodies are going to lie dead in that wilderness, and then I'll take your children, I'll take the next generation in, but you're never going to get in. And you remember when they heard that, you remember what their response was? Oh, we've blown it now. They got up early the next morning, and they said, we're going to go. We're going to go. Moses said, don't go. Don't add to your sin. God has sworn in His wrath, you will not enter His rest now. And they just disregarded Moses' warning, and they went in, and you remember what happened? They were slaughtered in battle. And they were thrust back into the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years. And then I would like you to turn, we, we alluded to this, 1 Corinthians 9. And the reason I want you to turn there is because... Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, he uses that very example that I just talked about to apply to the believer today, and that we better take care and not make the same mistake. And also, going back to the example of the children of Israel, in case you were not here uh, for those messages, remember that deliberate act of sin of failing to go into Kadesh Barnea, going into the promised land? Remember, God stated, it wasn't a single act. He pointed out an attitude that had developed in the community. And willful sin. Remember, he says, you you have murmured against me, you have failed me these ten times. In other words, they had developed a pattern of unbelief and disobedience. God had given them every opportunity to turn things around. And they were just emboldened in that attitude of them. And God said, basically, you've given me no choice. I wanted to take you in. You're the ones refusing to believe. You're the one refusing my mercy and grace. You're the one refusing my provision. And if you refuse it, then there is no other choice but for you to know chastening and for you to know the wilderness. But look at, um, uh, and we'll run through this very, very quickly. Uh, verse 24 uh, of chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that those who run in a race and notice the little word all? They all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may uh, win. And he says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Now, let me just stop right there. Going to chapter 10 now. So he gives this analogy of a race. That the Christian is going to race. And we all begin the race. And we need to all have our eyes on the prize of Jesus and run to win. 
And then he gives the example of the children of Israel, the one I just alluded to. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all, notice the word all, all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. They all began well, but they didn't finish the race. And God was not pleased. Why? For they were laid low in the wilderness. Why? Now, these things happen as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. And let us not try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the servants. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things... Happened to them as an example, an example to us, that, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Lest he fall. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with me, real quick. Look at, uh, here's an example of severe discipline. Look at verses, look at verses 27. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup, what's it referring to? The Lord's Supper. In an unworthy manner. What's in an unworthy manner? Well, one of those unworthy manners would be a believer who's deliberately, intentionally walking in sin. Yet he's continuing to fellowship with the community. He's continuing to go through the motions. He's masking, he's cloaking his sin, that, it, that, that evil that's in his heart. And he goes through the motions, and he continues to take of the Lord's Supper. And he says, they shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. That word sleep means you have died. God prematurely took them. Because they were deliberately, willfully walking in sin, despite His gracious offer to them. And then He goes on and says, For if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are what? Disciplined by the Lord. In order that we may not be condemned along with the world. I mean, folks, there comes a point where God just says, okay, if you're just going to continue to walk in that path, if you're going to continue to be an embarrassment for me, come on, child, we're going home. I always loved that illustration Brother David used to give years ago of the parent that took his child to the party. And the child just kept acting up, acting up. And the child kept warning, pleading with the child. And then there came a point where the parent, what, just grabbed the child's hand and says, we're leaving. We're going home. Because of your refusal to obey. Your refusal, and God often does that with his child. One more. Look at Second Samuel. This is uh, the example of David. And his deliberate, willful act of adultery with Bathsheba. And he didn't stop there. He tried to cover his sin by willfully, deliberately having her husband Uriah killed. You know the story. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let me begin at verse 7. You remember Nathan the prophet came to David and confronted him. 
And this is that occasion. We, won't go, we don't have time to go into the whole story, but let's just pick up at 7. Nathan then said to David, you're the man. Remember, he gave him that little story. David was incensed at this guy who had everything he could ever dream of, stole this one little guy's pet lamb, and then slaughtered it for himself to eat. And David was incensed. And Nathan said, David, you're the man. You're the man. And then notice, thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? Notice, David, the psalmist, the man who had a heart after God. On this particular occasion, he despised God's word by the evil that he did. He says, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed with the sword... Uh, with the sword of the sins of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. And that's exactly what Absalom did when he revolted against his own father. When David had to flee into the wilderness for his own life as a result of the mutiny. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin, you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. Look at the next statement in your notes, which says, note, for the believer, there is nothing more tragic than the sad consequences of forgiven sin. Notice David was, was forgiven. David says, I've sinned. I'm worthy of death. Nathan says, God has forgiven you. You're pardoned. But nevertheless, you're going to live the rest of your life with consequences. Just like the children of Israel in the wilderness who had been redeemed out of Egypt, had been saved by the mercy and the grace of God. They were a forgiven, they were a redeemed people. Yet they suffered the consequences of 40 years wandering aimlessly in the wilderness until they died, never knowing the full blessing God would have given them. And then look at the third point. Well, let's, we just need to stop right there. We'll pick up there next week, but uh, might be a good place for us to stop at. And, and just have a time of reflection as we go into the invitation. This message has been to believers. And, it, and, it's, and it's, it's not complicated, it's simple. We're all struggling with our sin. I don't care if it's Andy Merritt, any one of the other elders, Billy Graham, whoever it is. We're not going to arrive till we get on the other side of eternity and see Jesus face to face and we're totally transformed and changed. 
So we all have to deal with sin and failure. We all have to deal with attitudes that are not right, actions where we fail God. And the simple point is this. When that happens, you have a choice. You can either go right into God's presence because He's already dealt with that sin. He's already judged that sin to find God's mercy and to find grace to walk away from that sin and to walk in newness of life. Or you can say, forget that. I want my sin. And I'm just going to willfully, deliberately walk in that sin. And I'm here to tell you, as lovingly as I know, but as sternly as I know as your pastor, don't try to mess with God in that way. You're literally just bringing destruction upon yourself. And don't just say, well, I've got my home in heaven. Let me tell you, you want to be that flippant about the chastening and discipline of God, my heart goes out to you because it's going to be painful. Because the way of the transgressor, the Bible says, is what? Is hard. And God will judge His people. He will discipline His people. Father, Lord, let us come to this passage with great sobriety, with great gravity, with great seriousness. But Lord, let us balance it over against that gracious invitation that You've given us. Again, this warning, help us see, Lord, comes right out of that. That the supreme sacrifice of Christ has made every provision for us to know mercy and grace even in the midst of our sin and failure. When we refuse that, we really have no other expectation than to be chastised, to be disciplined by you. And so, Father, I guess the need of the hour is repent, is for us to come to our senses, if need be, like the prodigal son, and return to you knowing that as we do, we will be met with mercy and grace. Even as David was met with mercy and grace. And even though he lived the rest of his life knowing those consequences, he knew your grace in the midst of that. And you even used the consequences to draw him closer to you. And even though the children of Israel knew the consequences of 40 years in the wilderness, they still knew your presence, they still knew your protection, they still knew your provision those 40 years. But Lord, let us not fall short of what you have for us like Israel did. Let us not fall short of you like David did. It even says there, God would have done much, much more and given David much, much more if he had not despised his word and fallen into that deliberate, willful act of sin and worn that mask to try to cover it up. So, Father, help us come clean before you today, knowing that we can without fear because Jesus already paid for the penalty of our sin. And as we come with sincerity, as we come with openness, you meet us with mercy. You meet us with open arms, just like the father met his prodigal son. And uh, you empower us then with your grace to walk a different way. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.